generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a Jesus-y podcast about race from the perspective of an Asian guy, a black girl, and a white guy, too. I'm Andrew, he, him pronouns, I'm Asian. And I'm Bethany, I'm black, and I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Chris, I'm white, I use he, him pronouns. Should I go? Yes, that's you should! How do we wanna... Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's we, usually I mean, how we do it with tests? other... Uh, yeah, we... yeah, well, no, we'll do it later. I think usually how we do it, see, now that we're not in the studio, it makes everything weird. But <laughs> Tess, just go ahead and, you know, say your ethnicity, your pronouns, and your name. And then we'll give you a little bit more of a formal introduction um, when we get into the conversation. Does that sound good? Right. Andrew, do you want to start over or just go from... No, I'm going to leave this whole conversation in. <laughs> yeah, that works. Okay. All right. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. I'm Tess. I'm white passing Mexican American and I use she, her pronouns. All right, cool. All right, Bethany, you want to give us an update? Sure. Um, so we haven't had corrections in a while because we're just a one like that. <laughs> but I just wanted to give everybody an update on my sorority sister who lost her mother to COVID-19 complications in the last episode. So I just want to first really acknowledge how many people reached out to me after listening to that episode and expressed their condolences. And particularly one family at Circle sent me a condolence card. And I felt so deeply loved by my community based on them just listening to our podcast and what we're doing. So I think that's the first thing that I want to acknowledge is that so many people cared for me in that moment. But also my sorority sister, I asked her if I could give this update in this episode. And she said to tell all of you guys that she deeply appreciates all of the love, the thoughts and the prayers as well. And that it's really helping her get through this moment. So her mother, like like we knew um, in the last episode, passed away from COVID-19 complications in New York. She was a beautiful woman that was working in the healthcare field, I believe, and contracted COVID-19. She also was a foster care mother and just a deeply loving, warm, safe, having woman. Um, and she's going to be deeply missed. And they were able to, I know a lot of people in New York have been having trouble with getting their loved ones back after they pass, but they were able to get her back pretty quickly and have funeral services two Thursdays ago. Um, right at the end of April. So when you, um, if you haven't listened to that episode or when you think of me and you think of her, please keep their family in your prayers as they're moving through this um, just crazy time of disarray in our world and also grieving in this crazy time of, of disarray. Please keep her in your prayers and your thoughts and all of your love and light. That's my update. Yeah. And I definitely appreciate, Beth, uh, the fact that you let us, um, because we talked about this, that we, that we, um, that we had that moment on the podcast. And I mean, we let people listen into our silence as we didn't know how to proceed. And I heard from a lot of people who really connected specifically with that silence. A friend of mine who just lost his grandmother said that he listened to that episode the, the morning after he got the news that his grandmother passed away. And he was he he felt like he was he connected with that silence. He was sitting in it with us. So 
obviously a lot of people are experiencing a lot of grief right now and um we're not isolated from it yeah. i guess and we're not isolated from each other in it i think that's yeah. why it was important for me to keep that moment in the episode because part of me was like i'm a very worst case scenario kind of pessimist type of person but part of me wondered if people would think that it was fake <laughs> or that uh -huh. like we set it up um yeah. because the timing was yeah just like crazy you know that we yeah. were in the middle of recording that episode and i almost ignored my phone until the fourth text message and that got my attention so part of me kind of wanted to like not include that in the episode in case people questioned the authenticity of it but what i thought was most important was like with with your friend's experience of us sharing in our humanity in this moment like 70,000 people have died at this point 70,000 families you know have had that moment um that we all experienced together when i read that text message while recording and that felt really important so we're going to go into our speak up section which um is an opportunity for all of you listeners to tell us what you think about our past episodes if you don't agree if you do agree if you just want to kind of tease something out a little bit more you can reach out to us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. And this letter comes from our lovely guest, Tess, who is one of our newest team members on the Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter team. Um, and yeah, I'm still getting to know Tess, but I'm super excited to have you on this episode. So I'm gonna read your letter, which flashes back all the way to episode one that we recorded, I think last Whoa. week. So we're going, we're coming up on a year, guys. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, here it is. Hey, Bethany, I think we've met before. Um, and I also go to Circle of Hope. I love y'all's podcast. And I even recommended it to my atheist sister. It's helped me reflect on a bunch, Bye. but possibly more importantly, helped me be more prepared for conversations with people. I never really liked the term, quote unquote, people of color, but I couldn't really figure out why until I started listening to the podcast. I'm Mexican-American, but very, very white passing. Recently, someone asked me how I felt about white passing people receiving awards reserved for people of color, and if I'd ever accept one since I identify as white passing. Mexican-American. In short, I explained that no, I wouldn't. Those types of awards aren't made for me, and that's fine. But it was certainly easier to articulate after listening to the Color Correction episode one. I have plenty more to say on that, but that's plenty for now. Thanks for all you're doing, and I'll keep listening. So that's, I think that's a good little introduction for you, Tess. Um, and what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? Tell us more about you. Um, sure. So um, like you said, I'm Tess. Um, I attend Circle of Hope um, with these lovely people. Um, I'm a teacher in Philadelphia, um, a history teacher for high schoolers, and I love what I do. All right, cool. So Tess uh, moved into our circles kind of um, because uh, of the latest kind of five-part webinar we did uh, about the color of compromise, where we examined the complicity of the church in the racist history of the United States. Uh, but in the first uh, session of the webinar, there was an interesting moment there 
where we were separating out people out into smaller groups from the large group. Uh-huh. And there were a couple of people where we where we had to figure out should we put them in the person of color group or should we put them in a, in a different group or with the white people? And we had a kind of an interesting discussion there. Do you remember that, Beth? Yeah, because I think I brought it up because uh-huh. being white passing is such a nuanced experience that I wondered if folks in the group that were white passing would kind of want to have their own group. And there was enough like white passing people, at least in my opinion, um, mm-hmm. to form their own group. And Tess, you you had an interesting response to that. You were like, eh, just put me with white people. Why, why do you think that was your response? Um, I think because at the end of the day, majority of my experiences out in the world with people I don't know and are interacting with are going to treat me as white. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even though um, I am Mexican-American and that's really important to me, um, it doesn't mean that everyone else in the world sees that way. And I've just been able to walk the world a little bit differently. Um, And so I feel like being in a space reserved for people of color doesn't seem like my spot to come in and add more whiteness to it. Does it make sense? Maybe we should explain what being white passing is. You want to do that for us, Tess? Um, sure. Um, so in generally speaking, a white passing person is a lighter skinned ethnic minority. In other words, if you have to tell people you're an ethnic minority, you're probably white passing. And like I said, anyone who, who gets to walk the world as a white person, even though the ancestors aren't necessarily white, are probably white passing. Great. That's a perfect definition. That's exactly what I would say. Whether you choose it or not, if you get treated like a white person, you're white passing. It actually, this is unfortunate, but it kind of takes agency away from the person and and how they define themselves in this construct of America that's either white or non-white. You don't get to choose. Yeah. And I I mean, we'll get, we'll definitely get into that more. Here's what I'm curious about, Tess. You said you're Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through what your family looks like? Yeah, so my mother and her side of the family are um, white, so European descent of some sort at some time. And then my dad's family are Mexican heritage. So part of my dad's family immigrated here from Mexico um, more recently. But uh, the family that we're more connected with, they're actually what we would refer to as Tejano. So they're indigenous people groups that my family has always lived kind of in the El Paso, Texas area. And so most of my family never actually moved. The border just changed and then we were Americans. So again, some of my family, it was um, immigration, um, but the family that we're more connected with, we've just kind of always been here. My dad is a very, very dark Mexican. I was going to say, Tejanos ain't passing nothing. No. Uh, So, and like even I have two siblings who are also uh, half white and half Mexican-American and they look far more Mexican-American than I do. And so I just, my, we have different moms. And so they're just the way their genes mix, they look a little bit more Mexican-American. But yeah, my dad's side of the family, like when you look, especially at like families or family photos, my grandmother like looks very like indigenous native person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For maybe this is a, not a super relevant story, but when I was little, I used to tell people that my dad was black because I didn't know Whoa. that there was a difference between being black and Mexican because he was wow. just so dark. <laughs> and I would like draw him with a brown crayon and like, 
my parents never really corrected me because they were afraid. They didn't really know how to correct me. And they were afraid if they said, no, no, he's not black. Then I would think that being black was bad or something. Uh Um, And so they just didn't correct me. And so like, for when I was far too old to be telling people that my dad was black, I was telling them that he was black instead of Mexican American. Um, At least eight (laughs) was the oldest I can remember, but it might even have been later than that. That is amazing. There's so much to unpack in that in that there story. Is. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> That's amazing. Especially, I, it, I feel like there's so much to unpack for like non-black POCs in America because you've spoken to this before, Andrew. That like, uh-huh. if you're not white, then you're black, and like it, uh-huh. it in America, it oftentimes feels hard placing where you belong. So I feel like that little that tension is kind of expressed in that story about yourself. Yeah, for sure. And even beyond that, Beth, to what you were speaking about earlier, about how so much of our racial experience is just what what the dominant, what other people perceive you as. And having different members of your family being perceived differently is just, that's like a level of nuance and tension beyond even what I'm used to or familiar with. Like, I don't even know how to begin with that. That's just amazing. I mean, when, so when did you learn that your dad wasn't black? Well, and that's the weird thing is that like, I always knew he was Mexican um, and of Mexican descent, but I just didn't understand that it was different. It's kind of like being like, oh, well, that lady has blonde hair or she has blue eyes. I just thought it was just how you describe people. I didn't realize that there was like ethnic ties to it, mm-hmm. um, especially because I knew like I grew up in a very diverse area. And so I knew the nuances of like that person um, is specifically like El Salvadorian or that person is specifically Greek or, you know, Ghanaian or whatever, uh, like specific ethnic background. I like understood that level. And so to me, the actual color was, did not necessarily have to match the ethnic background, especially because I knew I was Mexican American, but I didn't necessarily look like my dad in color. So color didn't necessarily, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, like matter in that sense, uh, matter in the sense of like, what ethnicity you are sure so the eth- the ethnicity part to you you were aware of the ethnicity part but the race part uh, yes. was a little less explained and i can definitely relate to that as a child of immigrants who also didn't know how to talk about race but did know how to talk about like what country different people were from i mean was there a time when you realized that your experience of moving around in the world was going to be different from that of your dad or your siblings um, yeah, so I, like I said, I'm, I'm super privileged and I grew up in a very multiracial, multireligious suburb oh. bubble um, between Baltimore and DC, um, which in some ways, hey, like Baltimore I'm kind of, City. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm from there because I can't say all the letters. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, in some ways, ironically, I think that like we kind of mentioned made it harder for me to understand the gravity of racial, like uh, color issues in that way. Recently, though, I started to kind of recover some of my memories that previously didn't really mean anything to me. Um, So even though I always knew I was white, but also Mexican, um, probably one of the biggest moments where I realized what it meant to actually be white passing, and I've now come to kind of see the privilege of that, um, was actually not until I was really like a sophomore in high school. Um, So there's this uh, person who worked at my school, and I don't even remember her name. I just remember that she was white, and she had brown hair, and she was like a counselor or something. Um, And I don't even know why this conversation came up. But I remember she kind of offhandedly had said to me, oh, I didn't know you were Latina. What? You're so smart. Oof. And Holy shit. yeah, like I, 
<laughs> exactly. And that should have been my reaction, right? Like, and I can think of a thousand better responses than what I said. And I would love to tell you that my 15 year old self called out racism and like set her on the straight and narrow of reconciliation or something. Um, but I didn't because what I actually said was thank you. And mm -hmm, yeah. that's my first memory of truly realizing uh, what it means to be white passing because not only do I surprise people when they find out I'm Latina, but also because I'm not immediately insulted at their racist comments. And that's like some super ingrained white supremacy privilege, whether I want to admit it or not. Yeah. Well, we all have that, right? Like mm -hmm. I can remember white kids saying to me in high school, right. well, you're not like other black kids and feeling mm -hmm. like that was a compliment, right? So like, yeah. I don't feel guilty yeah, about sure. that. That white supremacy runs deep in each and every one of us that don't have white bodies. Yeah, yeah I think Just you're so desperate. You're like desperate for this like, uh, some sort of uh, validity or something from a white person that it feels good, even though you might have to forfeit kind of your other identity. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Especially since that other identity is already looked at as less valuable, right? So mm -hmm. to have a white person who is viewed as innately valuable notice you and place a little bit of value on you is like satisfactory because that's how the structure and the system works. Also, guys, I'm a little radical because I just was in a webinar with Resma, I can't say his last name, Minicum, and Robin D'Angelo. So I'm a little fired up. So if I say the word <laughs> system or oppression like 30 <laughs> times, it's because I was just on a webinar. Just saying. <laughs> I'm with you on that, though. That's what I like. Um, all right. All right. So, Tess, can you tell us, like, in terms of how your ethnicity expressed itself when you were growing up, like, did being Mexican-American feel like something different when you were growing up in terms of language or food or, or other expressions of ethnicity? In some ways, yes. Um, I was not taught to speak Spanish, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one time my dad kind of expressed to me that part of that was he knew if I didn't wasn't taught Spanish, then I wouldn't have an accent. And then I could really pass for white because, you know, you have this little white baby and you want to protect your children from the world, um, even if that, you know, means you have to give up part of your identity. And I think in the past few years, uh, my dad especially has helped rejuvenate in some ways our Mexican-American heritage. Um, I think for a while he uh, definitely wanted to fit in in the white world. And I don't know if he would express it that way, but that's, you know, my understanding of it. Mm -hmm. So growing up, we... We didn't, we had enchiladas and we had, you know, Mexican food. I had basic Spanish level, but definitely not fluent. I wouldn't even consider myself fluent at any means at this point. Um, but for the most part, I had a pretty white experience. Um, I mean, and part of that is my mom doesn't speak Spanish and it's really hard to learn language if you don't have that conversation in front of you. Sure. And so it's not until recently, like even uh, my last name has an Enye in it. And it wasn't until I was in college that I actually started including it on things and started making people use it um, because historically, even though my family had it, we just kind of didn't use it. It was just, it wasn't said we could sound Italian um, without the Enya and it was just easier to kind of um, Do you want to just, just sound be out the more white who than might Mexican. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that... But, like, between the two ways you can pronounce your name. 
Yeah, so my last name that I, most people know know me as from uh, high school and before that is Patino. And then my last name that I prefer people use um, now is Patino. So there's an ñ on the end, which makes a yo sound, not an n sound. Mm. Bethany, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like everything that you're saying makes so much sense. And it sounds like a survival mechanism, right? Oh, for sure. If you have access to being able to survive in America a little bit better, and it's just a matter of taking the Enye off of your name, like, yeah. I would totally do that. And especially if it just makes you sound Italian, if you could just be spicy white, go for it. I would do it. Yeah, and even my uh, my family that has been here and our Mortejano has a um, history of being in the military. Yeah. Um, and even then, like they have experienced a lot of racism. And so my, I think it was my grandfather just stopped using it so he could be Italian because he was, one of my grandfathers was a little bit more white. And so- it wasn't until recently that, you know, I kind of asked my dad, well, why don't I knew there was an Enya in her name, but I didn't understand why we didn't use it. My dad kind of explained to me more of the history oh, of it. And I was like, well, that's bullshit. And so I started using it. And my dad now does too, actually. So that's mm-hmm. been really cool. Yeah. Well, all right. Here's my, here's my ignorant POC question. Yes. <laughs> so you have generations of your family disavowing your non-whiteness. You were raised with very few markers of that non-whiteness and you're you can be perceived as white so why not just be white you know because i mean bethany i'm with you like if i could get away with being white i might just go i just might be white you know oh it seems gosh, yeah. like a better deal I've heard that they get free newspapers. You haven't heard about all the scholarships I can get? Yeah, like, <laughs> come on, Andrew. Thing. I can get scholarships if I check that Mexican-American box. Oh, um, yeah. I don't have a very profound answer for that. I think part of it is just, it just feels so dishonest, and that's not who I am. And the the small markers that I do have um, are really important and are huge in my identity. For instance, around Christmas time, we have a huge tamale party and we have this huge event and we invite everyone who, who we know over, Mexican or otherwise. Um, and we just have a big party all day and um, we teach people how to make tamales and you take some home and it's just a really great time. And I love that. And if I want to be white, I don't get that part. Mm. And I don't get, I don't mm-hmm. get, the history i don't get um culture yeah and and that's something that you know even i often refer like when when someone is mm-hmm. a, a term that we often use is you say pobrecito so it's like poor baby in spanish and i i just say that to people all the time and i didn't know why i said it because it's kind of like mocking people honestly like you're like oh you poor baby and I didn't, I couldn't figure out why I said it because my dad never said that to me and I don't know where I got it from. And then one day I overheard my dad talking on the phone with my grandmother and I realized my grandmother said it to my dad all the time. And that's, I just picked it up from listening to her say it. And, you know, it's, it's the little things like that that are really important to me that I don't want to lose. And, and sometimes that comes with a price and it is a lot easier to be white. And I get to just choose that sometimes. Yeah. yeah I think buying, into the identity of whiteness you lose culture and humanity 
for access. And I think if you're a white per passing person, it's a matter of deciding what you think is more important between those two things, like access or like consistent culture and humanity. So I could mm -hmm. get why you would choose the latter. Yeah, I definitely think for the first 20 so years of my life, I would have 100% always chose access. But I think I'm now starting to realize that I'd much rather choose culture and I'd much rather, you know, honor the people in my family who have worked really hard to, to help me get where I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely also see how you, you said that it feels dishonest to just embrace whiteness completely. And I, and I definitely understand that, too. I'm thinking about your relationship with your dad and listening to your dad talk to his mom and thinking about how in order to kind of claim that family connection, you have to embrace the fact that you are Mexican-American. Like the idea of me thinking of myself as a different race than my, than my parents or my family feels uh, uh, really, um, yeah, that feels crazy, you know, because I want to be connected to them and to disavow that connection really feels like mm -hmm. death to me, you know? So I, I get why you would want to embrace that connection. At the same time, Bethany, you've spoken before about, and I share in this a little bit, and you may, maybe, I mean, you, you might have picked up on that with just the nature of my question, a little bit of hostility toward people who are able to pass in that way. And in some ways, kind of claim the best of both worlds. I don't know, Beth, can you speak to these complicated feelings? Yeah, I definitely feel the same way because I feel like there's so much privilege. So, what am I trying to say? I feel like there's so much privilege in being white passing, a privilege that I could never access of um, turning it almost on and off, that I actually feel really hostile towards white passing people, especially when one, I either see them moving in and out very fluidly, or two, sometimes I've experienced white passing people lamenting that non-passing people don't accept them and i'm just like uh yeah motherfucker i don't like you get <laughs> access to things that like i could never access like you don't quite get my experience mm -hmm. so i think that's yeah i think that's the tension or hostility that i often feel yeah and i think it's so sorry Go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, Andrew, it's so funny that you even use the word best of both worlds because that's my whole life. People always tell me that. And they're like, oh, well, you always get the best of both worlds. And even like I've joked about that and kind of pointing to what Bethany said, like, well, it really feels like I'm not welcome in either world. Um, cause you know, you're never the, the typical sentiment for mixed people or white passing people, um, is that you're never white enough for white people, never Latina enough for Latinos. And yet you still got to choose a side and only one side to prove something, mm. you know? And in that case, I don't get to be a white Latina. I'm either white or I'm Latina, never both at the same time. And, but that like Bethany's pointing to, that's white passing. It's a white privilege that I get to choose which one is more convenient at a certain time. But it always feels like a betrayal. And I know it's privilege, mm -hmm. but it always will just feel like I'm a broken version of white people and I'm a broken version of Mexicans and I'm not allowed to be either. Yeah. Um, and yep. and even though I do get that white privilege from strangers, I often feel mm -hmm. like I don't get that white privilege, so to say, from people I do know. Yeah. 
No, I definitely get that, especially from that uh, that idea of wherever you are, it's always conditional. Is I can definitely connect to that as as an East Asian, especially when we exist in a country in like a country that often looks at race as black and white. That's that's like not not white enough for white people, uh, but definitely not black. Like existing Wait. in that weird gray area, I can I can totally connect with how you feel there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just this. It's so frustrating because um, I have in my head how I feel about white passing people. And then when I hear a white passing person actually talk about the experience, I'm like, oh, that sounds really <laughs> difficult. You know, mm-hmm. so now I almost don't even know what to say because yeah. like, I can't imagine, at least I get to be black. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I have a friend that whenever she records something on Facebook, she always starts it with, Good morning, niggas. And I love that, right? Like, because I get that. That's my thing. Like, right. when I hear another Black person say that to me, I'm like, good morning, brother or sister. Like, we get <laughs> each other. We have this this shared language. We have this experience that gives us access to this language. And no matter what happens, I will always get that word. I will always get that shared language. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine... <laughs> being white passing and trying that (laughs) and the the response that I would get right and Mm -hmm. I would be like no like maybe my mom's black maybe Mm. I was only raised by my black mom like like what do you mean I can't say this word like I'm I'm you guys right like I have the same experience you as you guys like I might not look like it I would that would be maddening right like in the same sense that I feel like I'm denied access based on a moment and I'm denied access based on the privilege mm. class. I can't imagine being white passing and getting denied access to the people that I feel like I have familial ties to in a moment. Mm-hmm. That sounds really painful. Yeah, I think that's the part that's hard to explain to people because there is this sentiment of like, well, in out in the open world, when you can go outside, I do get all the privileges of white people. You know, I'm not followed around stores. No one questions my walking around their neighborhood. Like all those things of strangers, I still get. But it's with the people that you do know that it's sometimes a little harder. Um, like I have, especially in my earlier life, but even more now, or even so now, when people, again, find out that I'm Latina, that the conversation changes um, and that... It's hurtful in some ways and strange, and you kind of just overlook it. But there is, is definitely the like sediment of the white people or Latina people. Well, now you're not the same, but you were before. And then once we know something about you, you're no longer a part of our club. Mm. And you feel mm. that with white with white people. Typically, when it's Latina people or Latinx people, it's well now you're on our team, but only like half time. And you definitely, especially because I'm a white passing Mexican-American who does not speak Spanish, even more so you're, you're out. You can't be involved with us in the same way um, because you have that language barrier, which is a big deal. Um, but also recognizing that part of the reason I don't speak Spanish is because of racism and because of the worry that I'd be treated differently. And so it's this kind of catch-22 of irony that the very reason I don't speak Spanish is still being held against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that difficulty of finding a sense of belonging and that 
the resentment that you probably feel from all sides. I'm with Bethany here. I'm like, I, I do feel for you. I feel like that, that sounds rough. And I can also understand it in terms of like the Asian American experience is like you, you don't, in America, people think you're foreign and then there's nowhere in the world you can go where you feel completely comfortable among other like Asian Asians think you are American. Uh, Air, oh, Americans think that. you're Asian. Yeah. So you're never completely in and you embody this kind of weird in-between space. Uh, Even so when I can, you go to like Taiwan, they can tell that you're American. Is it like the way you dress or something? Oh, for sure. It definitely the way I dress. Even, I mean, the way I speak, obviously, because my Mandarin's not great and my Taiwanese probably has an American <laughs> accent. And I don't know. Um, you can just tell. Like, mm -hmm. Americans like walk a certain way. They wear jeans all the time. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's like, it's, 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 uh, you can't, um, it's, it's in there. Um, and you and that feeling of, of not having a place, like, I can definitely, I, I definitely hear, uh, what Tess is saying there. Mm -hmm. And I will say what is positive is that I've been lucky enough to find, like, other, Latinos who do, for the most part, accept. Obviously, they can't mm. accept me to the fullest because at the end of the day, I'm still a white person. But it is nice to like have Spanish-speaking friends who will translate for me and include me in the conversation rather than just pushing me out of it. Um, and so I've been really lucky, but that is not the entire white passing experience, especially because as a white passing uh, Latina, it's really easy just to only be in white circles, especially the way I grew up. And so to have a few circles of Latina people who do accept me has been really valuable um, and helpful for me. But that's only in recent, I would say that it's been more obvious. Yeah. I think the tension that I mainly felt going into this conversation comes from the place of like having a non-white female body, especially as like a plus size black woman and a dark-skinned black woman, I feel like I constantly live my life apologizing, right? Like when I walk into an all-white room, I'm already apologizing, even if it's not explicit. I'm trying to perform docileness or something. Um, so I, I feel like my existence is this like consistent apology and need to make white people feel comfortable because of my non-white body and what and, and what is inherently associated with my non-white body. I feel like tension is almost too nice of a word. I think it's just flat out jealousy. Like I wish I didn't have to apologize for my body everywhere I go. And goddamn you that you don't. <laughs> like that, that's what it feels like, you know? Um, but hearing, yeah, hearing what you're saying, that I feel that tension in my body still. And like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to take in what you're saying. Yeah. But mm -hmm. like just living a life with my body being this walking apology. It's, it's hard to take in what you're saying. It's yeah. really yeah. hard for me. I think it, especially again, this pointing to that to most people, I just am a regular white body, nothing special. But then, not always, but there is this switch of, oh, you're Latina. And I've had more people than should say things like, I can tell because of your body type. I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? I don't, it doesn't matter. 
I, I look like a white person still. And so I think this, I think that even though sometimes pe- white people in particular try to give me a different body of some sorts as if to like justify me being Latina of some sort, at the end of the day, I'm not. And I think some of this, I, I don't even know if it's guilt, but this like, oh, like you poor white passing person is mm-hmm. just more like you feeling sad for my whiteness or something. I don't know. I don't know how to express that. In other words, just saying like, it's not something that uh, people of color should necessarily feel bad about because at the end of the day, I am white passing and I do get a lot of privileges because of that. Even if I sometimes feel like I don't fit in certain places, that there is a lot of privilege and I don't want people walking away from this thinking that I think that woe is me and my world is so sad all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, um, I, I can, de- yeah. Uh, are we okay leaving that subject there? Mm-hmm. Thinking about how to transition. I, I, I get, I, I like that Tess is acknowledging that the difficulty of the racial gray area of being white passing and dealing with white passing privilege is not on the same level of, for instance, having to be afraid of the police. As an Asian person, we're also like, I'm all, I'm always also trying to reckon with the privilege of not having to most of the time fear for my bodily safety mm-hmm. while also recognizing that white supremacy can affect us in different ways. But I definitely want to acknowledge that it sounds like all of us are talking about how do we get people to acknowledge our, the fullness of our humanity. Bethany, mm-hmm. you and I are always pushing against people questioning our humanity because we have to prove that we're not something, you know? Like, right. I have to be extra assertive. I have to speak English extra well. You have mm-hmm. to make sure that people don't feel threatened. Whereas in order to have people be aware of the fullness of Tess's humanity, and Tess, I mean, correct me if, I'm, if I, you feel like I'm speaking wrongly for you here but it sounds like in order for people to know her fully she has to assert that those aspects of her identity that are written on our faces Mm. but in order to be honest about Mm. who she is well you know to be honest about who we are we have to like chip away at what people think we are in Mm -hmm. order to have people be honest about who people who tess is tess has to assert what people don't think she is does that Mm -hmm. i'm kind of putting together as i as i talk but does that make sense yeah i think so definitely this definitely speaks to like how strange this this social construct of race is in our identities mm-hmm. and how it how it's mixed up in our humanity and i think getting people's humanity wrong is mm-hmm. a is a is a problem that is you know goes back to the ages i think we see it in the bible <laughs> is this my cue <laughs> <laughs> this the Beth, you like that was, that was good. so that was good, good. Was it was such a good Matthew. transition i was like what? <laughs> oh, okay. We definitely because <laughs> that was eloquent AF. And I wasn't ready. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I we certainly do see it in the ages. One story in the Bible that has always bothered me, and like. I got into an argument with with my mom about it. She basically was like, are you calling Jesus our savior racist? But I there's a story in Matthew 15, 21 through 28, where um, a Canaanite woman who would have been viewed as um, 
less than Jesus as a Jewish man walks up to Jesus and asks him for help with like healing her daughter that that had been um possessed by a demon. And Jesus says something to the effect of, girl, I wouldn't even throw you a bone. Like, it's just like this really rude statement. I can't remember what the scripture is. It's something to the effect of, would you take the, the bread off of your table um, to, to, from your children to feed the dogs? Can somebody help me out? No, you got it right. Uh, I did? It is, I, yeah, this is from the NIV. Okay. All right. I'm going to look the scripture up real quick so I can read it. Okay, so the scripture is Matthew 15, 21 through 28, the faith of the Canaanite woman. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. But yeah, that story has always bothered me, especially as a Black woman that has felt the need, like I said, to apologize for my body and the assumptions that come with my body. I feel like Jesus really tried that woman. So like, what does that say? How do we wrestle with this scripture and with Jesus when it seems like... um these internalized biases mm, even mm -hmm. showed up with him. One of the things I read recently or came back to is Jesus and the Disinherited. And the author, um, he talks about this story a little bit. Essentially, I, I think this is like, Beth, like what you're saying, like this is a moment where like Jesus has a little bit of power. Like that's not the, the typical, that's not the typical place a Jew in, in um, occupied Rome or like Rome occupied Palestine finds himself. And I don't, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't know if he actually handles it very well. <laughs> and that's actually kind of Howard, Howard Thurman kind of points to that too mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. in chapter five of um, Jesus and the Disinherited. Howard, like, like he thinks this is what she's thinking at this moment. What right has this woman of another race to make a claim upon me? What mockery is there here? Am I not humiliated enough in being misunderstood by my own kind? And here this woman dares to demand that which in the very nature of the case she cannot claim as her due. Yeah, that quote went over my head. Can you read it one yeah, more time? Yeah, so like this this Canaanite woman. Or I just explain like, to us what you think it I means. Mean, now, now, like mm -hmm. now, like we're exploring the the like socio political landscape of like Jesus's day, which like I have no business doing. So I'm 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 going to try not to do too much of that. It's just like it's very clear from the passage that like they're coming from different um, backgrounds, and I think that and it, it does sound like the hierarchy here is that. Um, he and his people mm -hmm. are highly oppressed by the Roman occupiers. So I think this is a moment where like he has some power and this woman technically has no right to ask for anything from him. Mm. Which I, Beth, I think that's actually what you're saying. Like it's not actually a good moment for Jesus. <laughs> so it's almost like uh, Howard was saying that Jesus was kind of asserting 
power and privilege when he got the chance to do so. Mm. So, Chris, is the commentary that you're reading is is saying that Jesus, yeah. uh, that the Canaanite woman's request was like an imposition, or um, I think he feels like it. It seems uh, like he feels inconvenience at this moment. That's what like Howard Thurman is kind of laying down. Well, white people always well, feel like, inconvenienced by people of color <laughs> when we speak up. You know what I mean? Like, well, what are we saying here? Are we like, we, I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, what are we can saying we, can here? We also like, read we can explain yeah, why Jesus was an asshole, but I think he was an asshole in this moment. And what does it mean for Jesus to have been an asshole? Yeah, no, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not not saying that, but I'm like, I'm wondering if it's like whiteness is the only way we to read could, this or if it's and also then he like, would still be an asshole. This is a place where like, like, one person of color has power over another for whatever reason. Well, mm. I don't think one person of color ever really has power over another. I think one person of color can yeah. sometimes buy into the systems of white supremacy and uphold them. And that's kind of what sounds like is happening. Like, I have experienced men of color being super misogynistic and patriarchal mm. and i think it's it's because it's their one chance at mm. power like white people don't mm -hmm. like us white people don't fully recognize our humanity but i do have a little bit more power than you women's and i'm gonna get it mm. and that's i mean go ahead andrew yeah what we've been talking about this whole episode is the idea of privilege and how privilege is a nuanced thing mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. and i think what you're saying, Chris, mm -hmm. is that in this passage, Jesus has some mm -hmm. privilege here. He's a man. He has, uh, he's a teacher. She's looking for a favor from him. Um, so he's got, he does have the upper hand in this situation, it seems. Mm -hmm. I don't know who is, we don't have to play, go white, black binary here and say we who's don't. the white person, right. you know? It, it, but it's clear in this situation that Jesus has some privilege and you know what he yep. he doesn't answer in the most compassionate way mm -mm. uh you know he says basically like this that's your problem isn't my problem i'm supposed to help my own people um and then she kind of yeah there's a little bit of a exchange kind of a clever back and forth and again i, I, just, I identify with that because you can't yeah. be mm -hmm. I, I don't want to make this white and black but the we bring our experiences into the Bible, right? Like the way I experience mm -hmm. the Bible is very closely related to my blackness and my womanhood. So that's just what it is. So for me, when I read this story, I can think of so many moments when I've had to check white men in a way that maintains the relationship, mm -hmm. um, but also lets them know, hey, I see you, homie. Don't push this too far. And I kind of mm -hmm. feel like that's what this Canaanite woman did with Jesus. And it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Bethany. Some people like to look at this passage and say that Jesus was like intentionally trying to get her to say the right thing before he did what he needed to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, but it, 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 they're yeah. a different way because they're uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus learning, I think. But the idea that Jesus was figuring this out the way that we're figuring it out I think makes me feel better actually. And I'm okay with that. I agree. Yeah. I'm okay with Jesus not getting it right every time because I, I, that helps me mm -hmm. connect with his full humanity. And like you mm -hmm. said, and this whole episode has been about um, privilege and access to power through whiteness, but also it's been about like 
asserting our humanity. And I, I, I can connect to Jesus's humanity in this moment because like I've said dumb shit too that upholds white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Yeah, cool. So the last thing that we like to do is talk about what we're into this week. Um, why don't we start with our guest? Hess? Sure. I am uh, into Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Said. I think that's how you say her last name. Um, it's, it's like a 28-day kind of workbook to try to understand a little bit more about white supremacy as it relates to me as a white person. Um, and I really appreciate it, especially in light of this conversation, because right in the intro, she does address white passing people and how mm-hmm. to enter into the book. And it really did feel like one of the first times that I got to enter into addressing my whiteness as a white passing Mexican American, not mm. as just white. And so that was really important to me. And I felt like going in, I was like, great, I'm going to put my Latina self on the shelf and then I'm going to read this book and it's going to be wonderful and I'm going to address my white issues. But to be allowed to kind of merge those two was really or has been really um really I think beneficial for me addressing white supremacy especially as it relates to white white passing not just oh well i'm latina so it's fine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah nice awesome beth so i'm into two things per usual i'm very into season four of insecure that is on hbo it premiered um i think we're at episode four already Um, so I just love Insecure. It's a great comedy kind of coming of age story, but like coming of age when you're about to be in your thirties and you're in weird relationships and you're having weird work things happen. And you're also navigating being a black woman. Um, so I totally relate to the show. I totally relate to Issa Rae and her writing. Oftentimes plot themes and insecure like totally parallel my life um so yeah i just appreciate that show but one plot theme that i do not identify with is if she gets back with her long-term boyfriend that ain't gonna be me i ain't never getting back with my ex-boyfriend so let's be clear (laughs) on this podcast wow well it's on the podcast and then the second thing that i'm into there is an article that was published in the atlantic yesterday by adam serwer I don't know how to say that man's name, Um, but it's called America's Racial Contract is Killing Us. And then this morning, they changed the title of the article to um, something to the the effect of um, Trump cared about the coronavirus until he found out who was dying. Mm. But I don't know why you would ever change an article to something so long. I feel like America's racial contract is killing us. (laughs) It's just fine. But anyways, (laughs) I wanted to read um, one quote from that that really stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's 2016 election campaign with with its vows to enforce state violence against Mexican immigrants, Muslims, and Black Americans was built on a promise to enforce the terms of the racial contract that Barack Obama had ostensibly neglected or even violated by his mere presence. Trump's administration in carrying out an explicitly discriminatory agenda that valorizes cruelty, war crimes, and the entrenchment of white political power represents a revitalized commitment to the racial contract. So I'm into insecure in this like badass article that really explains 
existing in America. How about you, Chris? Um, I also have two things. Uh, one of my favorite performers from the last two Turn Up to Bailouts, um, Brandon Molden, um, has been releasing more music over this pandemic. I think he's probably just sitting at home with uh, with more time on his hands and putting out some good stuff. So he like he um, he released um, I Surrender All, which is a cover. It's a really good one. Um, so I've been listening to that. Also, I have really, really, really been enjoying this um, text thread that Bethany and I are on with a couple people that we do participatory defense work with, Adesh and Mary, <laughs> which is just us sharing food we're eating. Um, because Adesh has this like way of plating everything and making everything beautiful. It's so and obnoxious. Have, like, it's it, but I love it so much. Yeah, but it is so obnoxious. <laughs> he it. makes everything. <laughs> look like fine dining i'm sick of him <laughs> yeah That's yeah amazing. i know like it it's it's so hard not to just want to go to his house for every meal but like seriously the conversation and the and the food picks have been getting me through i love it that's great um this week i am into um amalgam comics and coffee house the first black female owned comic book shop on the east coast uh they are now after being closed for a while, they're now open for taking orders, book orders. I want them to still be in business when this is all over, and I want to be able to walk yeah. down to this place, which is in my neighborhood, and support Ariel. Uh, so, buy books from this place. I, I want to recommend two uh, comic books that I see are available on their website. Um, Lumberjanes is kind of an all-ages comic uh, about a bunch of girls who go to a, a scout camp. Uh, and deal with like monsters and stuff there it's a lot of fun for um kids or really anybody um and also paper girls is a really good comic uh it was it's about um it's about a bunch of uh newspaper delivery girls who have to deal with time traveling alien mutants also a great comic book and i recommend both of them and buy them from amalgam please so. andrew likes comic right. books for teenage girls something we learned they both feature a diverse cast of girls being cool and no. i'm not mad nothing yeah, so, wrong with that I, like yeah, I, I recommend these uh cool so uh special thanks to luke bartolomeo our communications manager once again we are recording uh distant from one another and hope to be in one another's presence sooner rather mm -hmm. than later yeah. uh, joe mahoney we miss you and we miss yes. everybody uh bethany you want to tell everybody how they can reach us Oh, yeah. So if you're listening to the podcast, I think I saw somebody in Australia is listening to us. Um, I've seen folks in India are listening to us now. Give us a what's up and let us know that you're listening and let us know mm -hmm. how you're navigating race and faith and this global pa pandemic and all the things in between because life is weird right now. And, you know, we want to hear from you guys and how you're navigating it. So yeah. email us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. And with that, stay black, Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs>